Welcome to Trying Days, The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. With us is Judith Vary Baker, a scientist, visual artist, writer, and a crusader for the truth, who, as a young prodigy in cancer research, had a love affair with Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans in the summer of 1963. Judith is the co-founder and producer at Silver Bullet Publications, the founder and CEO at JFK Conferences, and she is the author of many books, including Me and Lee, How I Came to Know, Love and Lose, Lee Harvey Oswald, David Ferry, Mafia Pilot, Kennedy and Oswald, The Big Picture, written with Edward Schwartz, Letters to the Cyborgs about our future with AI, and the soon-to-be-released Lee Harvey Oswald and Me, which is the second edition of Me and Lee, and Judith has other books planned. Judith and Chris, it's great to be with you both. It's a pleasure to uh, have this opportunity to be here, and uh, with uh, Chris especially, and it's nice to meet you, Bruce. Well, thank you very much, uh, you know, Judy. It, it, it has been quite a journey. First, I, I heard about your uh, story from uh, Ed Haslam, and, you know, my, as I've told before, my first comments were when I heard the story, I says, no way, uh, she'd be dead. And he said, well, yeah, but, and he told me the story. I mean, you know, it was so amazing. I mean, they tried, uh, they even pulled out a, a fake Judith Barry Baker, you know, to see what Ed was uh, stumbling across. And then, you know, we uh, started working on your book and it, it took me, you know, it took us two years to uh, go through it and, and to, to vet everything. And a couple of things that just amazed me. I mean, for, for one thing, you had this, amazing amount of, of, of documentation from your time in, in New Orleans. I mean, and it, it, it's been so funny because, you know, sitting here in the publisher's seat, you know, I would get all these, oh, well, she's just making this all up. She just, you know, wants to uh, get her, her day in the sun and, and all this stuff. And, you know, I mean, and they start yeah. off first saying that, you know, it, it was all a lie. And then they would say, well, okay, well, maybe she was a science prodigy, but you know, she was never in New Orleans. And then they would say, okay, well, uh, maybe she was in New Orleans and she was working on science, but, you know, um, she never knew Lee Harvey Oswald. And, and then it would get, okay, well, maybe she knew Lee Harvey Oswald, but she um, never was his lover and blah, blah, blah. I mean, and all these stuff. And one day, you know, I get this call from I think it was a, a fellow up in New York. And he says, the, the address where she said in, in Florida doesn't exist. Everything she said is a lie. And I had to say, well, wait a minute. Uh, you know, the house I live at used to have a different address 20 years ago. I call up the uh, Bradenton Library and they, they go to their, uh, you know, their old books. And they say, oh, yeah, that was Mr. Baker's uh, address, uh, at the time, and and then the most amazing thing was that guy from Australia oh, uh, says, "Oh, uh, uh, she she got all of that ephemera, you know, the the transfer tickets from the New Orleans uh, transit. She got all those off of eBay." I, I tell this guy, I say, "Okay, okay, please, you know, go find this stuff on on eBay." So he finally comes back, and he, he comes up with some. Uh, uh, transfer ticket from the late 60s and said see see you can you can get them and I say well okay you but you know I mean it's it's just been ridiculous you know Judy 
I get very upset. Like, I mean, at the last uh, conference we had there in Dallas, you know, I got up and said, you know, I, I, I'm so sick and tired of the attacks on Judith Ferry Baker. Why not take what this lady is saying and work it into, you know, a looking at the Kennedy assassination? I mean, where would we have been if, you know, for this past 10, 15 years, these poobahs had actually worked with you instead of calling you all kinds of names oh, in the yeah. book? And it just, you know, upset. And so I was very, very happy when, oh, what's his name? The U.S. Attorney, Bob, oh. uh, came to the conference and, and just really read a riot act. And then, you know, when, when Oliver Stone came and, you know, put his arm around you, and, you know, and we found out that some of these yahoos hadn't even read your book and they were still just railing. I mean, I'm sorry, but it, it, it has always gotten me very, very upset, you know, about the way that, you've been treated and real, real quick chris can you say what that attorney bob had to say reading them the riot act what did he do or what did he say well he was he was involved with the house select committee i believe that was and, robert k tannenbaum yeah robert tannenbaum and he just oh, said listen yeah. judy is telling the truth you know and he just got up there and i was very very happy to see that still with with all this there's still people uh taking snipe shots at you I've had the pleasure of, of meeting you, of meeting your family and meeting, meeting, you know, some of your, your children. You, you've had, you've gone through hell <laughs> and back again. And then, and then, I mean, it, it's just amazing. So what has kept you going? What, you know, what, you know, what has kept you going? I, I've always said it was because you loved Lee. Well, it is. It's love. It's love. Love conquers everything. Uh, trying to give you an example of uh, Bruce. Are you married? No, but I'm not right now, but. <laughs> well, yeah. do you have someone that you love a lot, a child or anything like that? I do indeed. Now, what if that child were accused of murdering the president and, and that child loved the president and had saved the president's life even once and had no one to confide in because if you do that, that person could die and they know they might die. And I went through a lot to get Lee to open up to me. Lee was a lot more intelligent than they made him out to be because they wanted him to look really stupid. I mean, you have to be really stupid to go and shoot somebody from your own office window, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then leave the rifle behind for everybody to find. I mean, that's really stupid. Well, he wasn't stupid and he knew what was happening to him. Excuse me. I still, still gets to me because uh, uh, we cried together the last time we talked and um, uh, he said, if I, if I left, he said, they'd probably find me anyway, you know, if I ran, but they'd kill all of you. Am I going to let all of you die? Now, I waited many years, and then I felt like a coward because of Oliver Stone's book, uh, I should say, film came out, and I avoided the film. But the minute my, la my daughter, my last of five children left, I got the film out and watched it. I mean, I'm talking about December 27. 1998, I looked at the book, at the um, uh, film. They had a flyer with it and all that. I was just shocked. I, I promised myself I'd never look at any of it again because I, I, I couldn't take it. I almost had it. I saw Lee shot on TV. And I don't even remember what happened for like the next two days. Literally, I can't remember. I remember screaming and vomiting. And that was it. And uh, uh, I, I, I knew that if I showed any feelings about this, that I could die. 
uh, Dave called me and he said, you have to be a vanilla girl. You keep your head down. Don't even get your name in the papers. David Ferry. David Ferry, when his name did get in the papers because of the garrison investigation, he called their office and said, I'm a dead man. You, you've killed me. Five days later, he was dead of natural causes. Yeah, right. They said that was a suicide, didn't they? Uh, well, my book, David Ferry, will show you that this was a murder. Can you talk a little bit about his intellect and, and, oh, and yeah. what he was doing? And how did he look with, you know, his wig and, and his fake eye, eye, eyebrows? What did you well, laugh? All, what, he, what did you want to do when you that saw that? On it. You know, he glued the, his wig on top of his bald head. He had no eyelashes. His eyebrows, he would put a lot of, I can grease tape. It, it was all kind of itchy, you know? So what, what he uh, did at home, and he pulled that thing off and scratched all the, the glue off and get his eyebrows, you know, cleaned up. But when he's found naked and dead in his bed on February 22nd, 1967, okay, he has his wig on and his eyebrows. That's another indication that he was murdered. He, he wouldn't keep them on. Now, David was a very fascinating man. He met... Dr. Mary Sherman at the Crippled Children's Hospital, they told me all about it. Uh, he was always interested in cancer because his mom was dying of it. So he had self-taught in many ways, but he was a brilliant man and knew many languages. I, I know of five that he could speak fluently. And of course he read ancient Greek and Latin and uh, even some Aramaic. So now Davis is involved with Dr. Mary Sherman who is involved with Dr. Alton Oxner in an increasingly important biological weapon uh, development. And why? They tried so many ways how to kill Castro and what bazooka, exploding cigars, uh, seashells that explode, uh, botulism put into a diving suit that nobody wanted to deliver it. So how do you kill a man with not, not being, have it blamed? Well, he smoked like a fiend. He's always had a cigar in his mouth. And they knew, my doctors that I worked with knew that smoking causes lung cancer in many people. And so what if he got lung cancer and we really gave it to him and nobody realized that, yes, we can deliver cancer to people. We were able to do it in the 60s. But like Dr. Oxner told me, yeah, we, could, we can pump somebody up with cancer cells enough that their immune system can't handle it all, but nobody's gonna be able to inject Fidel Castro with a pint of cancer cells. They started developing something that's really virulent and extremely potent. Of course, I saved this stuff. I didn't save it because of the Kennedy assassination. The things I did save, I did because of the fact that we were developing a cancer bioweapon, and I was extremely concerned about what would happen to it afterwards. Do you think they're going to throw that thing away? No, no. And, you know, uh, speaking of Dr. Mary Sherman, there was a book that just came out from uh, uh, New Orleans, Cops and Characters in the Big Easy by officer Gene Fields, uh, he goes into the, the Mary Sherman uh, murder and, and confirms everything that uh, Ed Haslam, uh, you know, collected and, and uh, just, just confirms everything about the- we've got Dr. James Campbell. His whole family knew Mary Sherman. He's a doctor and a neuro, he's done neurosurgeries and all this stuff. And he's confirmed that the only way she could have lost her entire arm and had that part of her body. I understand that the day the Warren Commission came to get unsolicited testimonies, that is, who wants to come forward and volunteer? That, that was yeah. July 1st, 1964. And whose front page news? Dr. Mary Sherman, one of the most important witnesses who had the guts 
who would have stepped forward. I believe she would. She is found dead. They, uh, they mentioned that she's been stabbed and her body was set on fire, but the clothes didn't even burn. Even the curtains didn't catch on fire, but yet her arm and the bone is gone. You can't have that happen unless you have a massive amount of electrical discharge that is incinerating it. We have our information on that. Right. Well, it's this, this, book this is my friend. Yeah. Yeah. It, it confirms everything from the, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the policeman that uh, went there initially and, and their uh, oh, investigations into it. it. It just confirms everything about it. Well, I mean, that's what's happening, Chris. Uh, I, when I spoke, started speaking out almost, what, 23 years ago now, uh, it sounded like crazy. What do you mean? I mean, you're, you're saying that Lee Oswald tried to save Kennedy's life. That was a good one because he told me, I believe I did, is the way he put it. He, he never, did. He never bragged. Right. He just believed he did. It turns out that we have Abraham Bolden, Secret Service agent, first Black Secret Service agent on the Kennedy detail. Kennedy himself requested it. He didn't last long because of prejudice from our Deep South, mainly uh, other uh, SS people there. He was transferred to Chicago. At that time, Kennedy, uh, this is three weeks before the assassination, hits right on because Lee's told me it was about three weeks earlier when he, he, when he talked to me. This was, this was only 37 and a half hours before the, the uh, assassination. Kennedy was supposed to come to Chicago and it was called off. And FBI called the Secret Service. Abraham Bolden was there. They had a speakerphone so everybody could hear it. Informant named Lee, it's on record, who told them so. Yeah, yes. And these are called shakedown cruises, okay? And that's what you do in intelligence. You want to find out who's yeah. talking to who. Well, now, people said, how, how did he have any uh, connections with Chicago? Are you kidding? First of oh. all, Dr. Mary Sherman is from Chicago and yeah. had all kinds of interest in, in uh, saving Kennedy's life, just like the rest of us who were involved. Uh, she was absolutely informed and knew a great deal. Did Lee, did Lee tell you that he made that call to Chicago? No, he said, I believe I saved Kennedy's life. Gotcha. Three weeks ago. Yeah. And, and that, there's a river that runs from New Orleans to Chicago. It's been and it's drugs been and everything. Time. Yeah. And Lee was so deeply involved with the mafia. A lot of people don't realize his uncle was very close to Carlos Marcelo. And Marcelo had a problem. He's involved with the Kennedy assassination, all right? He really is CIA, especially. He's friends with Dutz Moret. And now he's sort of retired. He got a cushy job with Marcelo, but he doesn't want to look like he has nothing to do with his nephew. That he's not going to defend him. So what does he do? He chooses Dean Andrews to do it. And Dean is in the hospital. <laughs> so uh, that way he's off the hook. Well, I tried, you know, I've tried to get my lawyer, the one that knew Lee, but unfortunately for him, uh, he was in the hospital. You're right. Well, that's how he sneaked uh, out of that. That's the way I look at it anyway. Anyway, I've got a lot of more new evidence. Oh my gosh, in witnesses. Well, you know, that's one thing. You know, Find those witnesses. Once you, once you went out there and started talking, I mean, uh, people have come out of the woodwork and uh, people that knew <laughs> you, I, I've been there. I mean, it was so fun. We went to see the uh, uh, lady from uh, around Clinton and yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I got to watch you guys kind of shadow dance around each other because you neither of, of you wanted to give each other anything that they could use. And then it, it soon became very apparent, like the lady said, she says, well, you had to be. There's no way you could know the stuff that you're saying. And, you know, and I watched other witnesses come out and and support your story. 
Now, uh, Dr. Oshner, I, I'd like you to, to tell a little bit about the, uh, the story of you refusing to kill a person and writing a note to Dr. Oshner and, and uh, him yelling at gross. you. It's absolutely gross. I'd like to say that there were three doctors involved in, in, in the evolution of my career in cancer research and I was being groomed and everything. And I was so untraceable. I was only 19 when I got involved with all of this. But those doctors were Dr. George Moore, the head of Roswell Park Institute, which was the oldest cancer research facility uh, in America. He was running 8,000 people and scientists and everything. And yet I was brought into his personal laboratory and mentored with also with his best friend, Dr. James T. Grace. This is important because they were working with the monkey virus and other stuff. He has two best friends, Dr. Harold Deal, the vice president of the American Cancer Society in charge of all the research that, that American Cancer Society sponsored. Who's his best friend? Dr. Alton Oxner. Now we have these three doctors and the reason I'm mentioning them together is because we can't mention Oxner really without mentioning the other two and, and their involvement. I say this because when this thing was being developed, they told me, uh, uh, Oxner said they were just gonna use a volunteer who was, you know, said step forward. And I was told by David Ferry originally that it was going to be somebody with terminal cancer. I made the er error in asking, well, look, I have to go and analyze the blood work on this after they're injected. Because if it's the same kind of cancer we've got, I wouldn't be able to tell. So, oh, he doesn't have cancer. He's perfectly healthy. I was horrified. The worst of it is, and it's in the book, Chris, I found the evidence. I, it took years to find it. Dr. Deal, Dr. Moore, and Dr. Oxner all went on record that they were just fine injecting cancer cells, live cancer cells, into people without telling them. Um, what excuse did they give you for doing that? They said if, if we uh, develop an uh, understanding of how to make cancer more deadly, we'll understand how to, how to attack it and kill it. Such a lie. Okay, all they did is develop more virulent and dangerous forms of cancer. So you wrote a note to Dr. Oshner. I did. And I said, Dr. Well, I said it's unethical to... Uh, give uh, someone a disease when they're without their knowledge, you know, basically along that line. I put a fold it in half, I put it in a little envelope. So it really wasn't sealed very well or anything. I said, please give this to Dr. Oxner and the, the nurse was there. It wasn't the usual nurse and she was there. The other one was on vacation. You know, this was late August of 63. And she says, is it urgent? I said, oh yeah, it's urgent. So she takes it out and she reads it over the intercom. Dr. Oxner, it is unethical to, <laughs> oh my dear God. And I got out of there as quick as I could. And I, I, I ran to Dr. Sherman's apartment because if she, I, I had, you know, she knew him, help, I need help. You know, what am I going to do? Uh, sure enough, boy, was he furious. He said, I was expendable and so was Lee. There was an interview a little later uh, where he told me I was lucky to get out of there with my teeth still on my head. He literally would have hit me if I hadn't gotten out of the way. He would have slugged me. Right. Well, you know, one of the most amazing uh, times I had with you when we were out, um, you know, talking about the book, and you got to talk to uh, this gentleman. He was about 70-some years old. He was a dean of cancer uh, reporters. 
and oh. and you you guys sat and talked for uh, I don't know a couple hours, and he was a he had actually gone and talked to the auctioner people, and when he found out that they didn't really want to respond, he knew that something was up. Now, um, the animals. The, you guys first started working with mice, and 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 yeah. Ferry had been working with mice, and he had he had a mice house, and and then. You guys yeah. moved up to monkeys, right? Well, we didn't go straight to monkeys. See, that's the problem they had before. They couldn't get this cross-species thing working right. They were working with monkeys, and that's a big jump. So um, I suggested, like we had done at Roswell Park, uh, go to marmosets. Now, marmosets are primates, but they're not, uh, they're not as developed uh, on the evolutionary scale. You can do an awful lot with a little marmoset that you can't do with a great big monkey. So that worked uh, by, you know, we had enough of them. The awful part is that right away, the green monkeys who were caged over here were transmitting this through the air to monkeys that had not been inoculated. Now that's how bad this stuff is. And we still have, I believe we still have it. This stuff, it gets, what happens, it's not, if it will get loose, it does get loose eventually, it just does. And we're seeing that with viruses, of course, now respiratory viruses. Ed Haslam lives in Bradenton, Florida. How the amazing is, is that? He actually moves to the place where I got started. He, he got access to all the newspaper articles that my enemy said never existed. There's not much that they can do about that except say that, okay, so she knew Oswald, but that doesn't mean she knows anything about the Kennedy assassination. And why would he confide in her? All, the, all she was was the secretary that that uh, worked at the same place and they've slept together. So what, is he gonna tell her everything? Tell the folks a little bit about your experience with 60 Minutes. I mean, and we have on video, the guy who started 60 Minutes saying, well, you know, we had this gal and we were gonna, you know, uh, blow uh, the story, but it got shut down from on above. Right, right, right. yeah. The door was slammed in our faces is the way that Don Hewitt, who is the founder of 60 Minutes, uh, quoted it. So did you meet with Don? hours and hours and not just only Don but Phil Scheffler who was one of the most important producers and of course um, Mike Wallace and there was so much opposition I'll put it this way they tried three times to film one time I even had makeup on my face okay it came that close it came from above CBS went to some new ownership and it was even worse than before and Dan Rather was at the top Dan Rather was sent to New Orleans just for a few weeks, just before the Kennedy assassination, uh, to run the CBS Bureau there. What was he so good at? He had reported on a hurricane in New Orleans. That was it. And uh, suddenly he becomes a really big, important top dog. And he gets to see this Apruder film and tell everybody, yes, I saw the president's head thrown violently forward, implying a shot from behind. Later, so he, he was brought from Texas to New Orleans in those summer three weeks, fall. just before, just before the and New Orleans, for those who I, know the assassination, I, is a hub I for intelligence. He was sent there to pick up everything and make sure he became like a gatekeeper. The other gatekeeper became George Lardner, who also was there in New Orleans at a critical time during the Garrison investigation. And everything that always went from Dallas and still does the big the stories about Lee. Every time they can find something about leaving bad oh he didn't pay his rent or whatever it was they'll put it and then washington post will pick it up and spread it everywhere that's the way they've done it for years chris milligan you've been fighting a giant 
And you know what? We've cut their toes off. It's hard to walk <laughs> on the toes. Well, it was very interesting, you know, uh, uh, doing your book. And we got the uh, hardcover out. And, you know, I, you wouldn't come to the United States. And finally, I got the uh, soft cover was going to be coming out. And I says, well, Judy, Judy, you know, you won't come to the United States. I says, well, how about Canada? And you thought about it a little bit. And you finally, you said, okay, you'd come to Canada. And I, and I, I say, well, you know, when's a good time? And, and you say, well, his, Oswald's birthday's in October. I says, okay, you know, that's great. We can do that. I'm just, you know, happy to, to, to actually get you over here so that uh, you can sign some books and, and, and stuff like that. And I don't really think about it. And then, you know, when we're sitting there in the bookstore in Toronto, and, you know, and I get the, the cake for you and you, you tell oh, me you want to get uh, Oswald with his handcuffs up there, you know, so I, I get that and we, we put it in front of you. And then all of a sudden you take uh, the knife and, and you cut between his handcuffs there. And all of a sudden it comes to me that, wow, this lady is doing a heck of a political act here. Here we're celebrating Lee Harvey Oswald's birthday. birthday. We aren't supposed to celebrate Lee Harvey Oswald. We're supposed to hate him. He killed our president. You know, we continue to celebrate Lee Oswald's birthday. You know, and what happens? It, it, we go from a situation where people are urinating on Oswald's grave to the situation where people are honoring Lee Oswald. And they're putting his, roses his on grave. his grave. And, and something spiritual is happening. Now, if you're not spiritual, just don't listen to the next few words I'm going to say. This conversation continues in podcast number 55.